You're listening to audio from Church of the Incarnation. To donate to our ministry or find out more, please visit incarnationcfl.com. So we're entering the desert today. As Father Tom alluded to last week, Lent is a 40-day figurative journey through the desert that in some ways follows Israel's 40-year season there. This morning, we're gonna look at Jesus' time in the desert and see how it compares and contrasts with Israel's desert experience. And we'll look at what the importance of of that is for us. So let's start by checking the gospel reading. Luke 4 in your bulletins or Bibles. The intro reads, after his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, or desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Note that this narrative begins after Jesus' baptism. So let's just rewind and recall that during Jesus' baptism, he heard the voice of the Father say, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, is reminded that he's God's Son, and is led into the desert for 40 40 days. Now, remember some of the initial components of Israel's story. God has Moses tell Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea and are led into the desert for 40 years. So the passage about Jesus' baptism and temptation are very intentionally showing that Jesus is following the same pattern as Israel in these preliminary first steps of his ministry. But as we look at Jesus' responses to the temptation, we're going to see a contrast between him and Israel. We'll get to the significance of this later, but right now let's look at the first temptation beginning at verse 2. It says, He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. So often in the Bible, when a writer or character quotes another part of scripture, that reference points the reader to the larger section or narrative from which the quote came and assumes the reader of that day would know what the story that the quote is taken from. It's kind of like if you have friends who have a similar interest in a movie. Maybe they're fans of a movie. You could quote a line from a funny scene and perhaps make everyone laugh. They don't need you to set up the whole thing up for them because one quote evokes the memory of the entire scene. So Jesus' reply here, and actually his responses to all three of the temptations, are kind of like that. They're shorthand for a larger context, a larger story, which is the story of Israel in the desert. Specifically, his replies are from the book of Deuteronomy, which is basically a long speech that Moses gave the Israelites in the desert as they approached the promised land. It's really Moses' legacy speech to Israel before he dies because he's reiterating the law of God, he's reminding them of different events in the desert and warning them to stay true to God and assuring them of blessings if they do and curses if they don't. So let's start by taking a look at the context for Jesus' reference in the first temptation. From Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, And he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, 
that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Moses here is reminding Israel of their time in the desert earlier, specifically when they first encountered manna. If you remember the story, shortly after the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they begin grumbling and accusing Moses of trying to starve them to death. Well, God responds very graciously by giving them manna that covered the ground every morning, and he tells them to only gather enough for that day. But some people disobey and gather more, and the excess manna ends up spoiling. Of course, what this amounts to is a trust issue. They were gathering more for the next day because they weren't sure if God would take care of them. And with that extra portion, there was likely a sense of relief. We're good for another day in case God doesn't come through tomorrow. But in seeking relief, they sacrificed a relationship with God because they refused to trust him. And we find Satan trying to tempt Jesus to go in a similar direction in our gospel reading. He says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. In other words, get the relief that you need, Jesus. You've had a hard go of it in the desert. And if God were really your father, he wouldn't begrudge you this, would he? But Jesus rejects this way of thinking and brilliantly employs the line, one does not live by bread alone, first as a rebuttal of Satan's temptation to seek relief over relationship, and second as a demonstration of how he's walking Israel's path, but triumphing where they failed. We'll see this as a pattern and get to the importance of it later. But for now, let's move to the second temptation. The devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus' response here is again a reference to Moses' speech, this time from Deuteronomy 6. It says, the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. And by his name alone you shall swear, do not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are all around you. Because the Lord your God who is present with you is a jealous God. So this is a reminder from the first commandment that we um, recited today. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But it also would have reminded Israel of their own failings in the desert in this regard. We all know the story from scripture of when Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments after meeting God and finds his people worshiping a golden calf. But what is the significance of that? Well, among the Egyptian pantheon, there were at least three bull gods that they worshipped. And so the golden calf doesn't point to some random god that the Israelites invented. More likely, they were recreating one of the Egyptian gods. So instead of worshipping the god who had rescued them from slavery, they're worshipping a god to whom they were enslaved. So the seriousness of this sin is that it was switching, a switching of allegiances a rejection of the one true God, and a rejection of the purpose and path that he had planned for them. A path that was difficult to be sure, but one that led to the promised land. By contrast, the path that they wanted, as was evidenced by what they worshiped, 
was the one that led back to Egypt, the one that led back to slavery. And Satan's second temptation in the gospel passage here is very similar. He's basically saying, you want to reclaim the earth, Jesus? Here you go. Skip the hardships that are ahead of you in doing it God's way and compromise. But what he was tempting Jesus to do was switch his allegiance from the Father to himself, the one whose deception of mankind led to their enslavement to sin. Of course, Jesus would have none of it. Instead, he stays the course that leads to the cross, thus showing himself again to be faithful in the desert where Israel was faithless. Finally, let's move to the third temptation, beginning at verse 9. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus' response here is once again a snippet from Moses' speech to the Israelites. The reference here is Deuteronomy 6.16, and the full verse says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So Moses is reminding the Israelites again of a, another not-so-flattering moment in their history at a place called Massa. To find out what that was all about, we have to go back a little further to Exodus 17, where the Israelites are complaining about a lack of water in a very similar way that they complained about a lack of bread. Once again, they accuse Moses of bringing them out of Egypt in order to kill them. Even so, God again graciously provides for them by making water miraculously flow out of a rock. Then the point about the testing comes in verse 7. It says, He named the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And there it is, the doubt. Remember, these are people who had witnessed the plagues, who had passed through the Red Sea on dry land and had seen many miracles on top of all that. Yet they are still asking if God is among them. Satan's third temptation is similarly based on doubt. We see him again using the if you are the son of God phrase to cast doubt on Jesus' identity. But then he adds a layer of craftiness to his plan. Seeing how Jesus uses scripture to resist his first two temptations, Satan decides to in integrate it as well into this trap. Of course, his use of it is out of context and twisted. He points to the verses in the middle of Psalm 91 about God's protection, but nowhere does the psalmist say anything about testing God to prove it. Such a stance assumes doubt and disbelief. But if you look at Psalm 91, which is in our readings today, it starts by assuming trust. Verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That's trust. Then, you are my refuge and my stronghold and my God in whom I trust. And so trust is the difference because God wants his people to depend on him. But what Satan is proposing in this temptation is not trust. In fact, quite the opposite. So Jesus again proves faithful by resisting the temptation to flirt with doubt and act based on disbelief. Instead, he chooses a relationship with the Father based on trust. So throughout this narrative, we see Jesus as faithful Israel. 
where the ancient Israelites complained and disbelieved about such things as bread and water, Jesus chose to be sustained by a relationship with the Father. Where, the, where ancient Israel went astray and served other gods, Jesus stayed true to the Father and to the difficult path that he had him on. But what does all this mean for us in our own deserts and struggles and temptations? Why is it important that Jesus embodies a new faithful Israel who was victorious in the desert? The answer to these questions has everything to do with what it means to be in Christ. Paul uses this terminology in Christ a good bit in his epistles, and at least part of what it means is what is true of Christ is true of you. You as a believer have been incorporated into Jesus' story. No longer is your story tied to the disbelief, doubt, and idolatry of faithless Israel. That is, no longer is your story tied to that of fallen humanity. Yes, that was part of your story, as it was for all of us. But like a train that changes tracks, so your story shifted and was set on a new course when you turned to Christ. Your story is now tied to Jesus' victory over Satan in the desert rather than Israel's failures. And that is who you are now. In Christ, you are one who is victorious in the face of temptations because he was victorious and your story is wrapped up in his. Does that mean that we never give in to temptations? Well, we all know better than that. We've all fallen, we've all disbelieved, doubted, grumbled, or sought relief rather than relationship. We've all been faithless in one way or another. But let's fast forward along in the gospel narrative all the way to Calvary and see what it means to be connected to Jesus' story at the cross. Paul says in Ephesians 1:7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. So when we fall or fail, we are still connected to God because part of Jesus' story, and thus part of ours now, is the cross which brings forgiveness and reconciliation. But what our sin reveals is an identity crisis. In those times that we give in to temptation, we choose to forget who we are. We're forgetting that we now identify with the one who was victorious in the desert, with the one who was victorious on the cross. So the first point, the first strategy, if you will, for victory in the desert is remembering, and remembering your baptism. That might sound strange to you, but think about this narrative. After the 40 days in the desert, recall that the first and third temptations thrown at Jesus began with the, if you are the son of God phrase, a blatant attempt to undermine the words that Jesus heard at his baptism. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so I think the same strategy is often employed on us. Our temptations are frequently preceded by either a seed of doubt about who we are in Christ or just a willful forgetfulness. But when we remember our baptism, we remember that we died to our old self and were raised in Christ as a new creation. We're remembering who we are in Christ. We're remembering our true identity as God's beloved children. In addition to understanding who we are in Christ and being connected to his story, we need to understand how Christ is in us and is connected to ours. Because being connected to Jesus' story doesn't mean being disconnected from our own. Quite the opposite, in fact. Knowing who we are in Christ is knowing who we truly are. 
who God meant us to be, and therefore it puts us more in touch with the story that God wants to tell through our lives as individuals. And he does want to tell a story through your life, a good story, a courageous story, a story that is filled with life, hope, love, and purpose. But in order for that to happen, we need Christ in us working through the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit for godly living and the power to minister in the way he has called us to. But how do we participate in that process? Again, I want to point to remembrance, but this time to another sacrament of the church, the table behind me. At the Lord's table, we imbibe Christ, and we do so as he commanded in remembrance of him. This is Christ in us symbolically and sacramentally. In John 6, Jesus called himself the bread of life in contrast to the bread that the Israelites ate in the desert yet died. And so Jesus is pointing to a connection with himself through faith and remembrance that leads to life, eternal life, that starts here and now. Because eternal life is not about the hereafter or about which side the hereafter you're on. It's about a relationship with the living God that starts now and continues into the hereafter. And at this table, if you approach it with faith and remembrance, it facilitates that relationship. Not that we earn eternal life by partaking of the elements or by any other means. Jesus has earned that for us. But the point is that Jesus himself is our life, and the more we step into a relationship with him by means of fellowship through sacraments, scripture, and community, the more we can experience his life and his story operating in and through ours. And we need this. We need to be in Christ and Christ in us filled with God's spirit working in us through, through us on a regular basis. Bookended on either side of the, our temptation narrative are two interesting verses. You've heard the first one already. It's from verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see, Jesus enters the desert equipped by God's spirit to deal with the harshness there and to do battle with Satan. And if that's the reality for Jesus, it certainly should be for us as well. Apart from Christ in us, working through the Holy Spirit, we can't hope to journey through our deserts with any victory. Now, as believers, the Holy Spirit is in us, but we need to continue to be filled with the Spirit by encountering God on a regular basis, as I mentioned earlier. Remember, Jesus said, abide in me, and apart from me, you can do nothing. That includes bearing fruit and living a life worthy of the gospel. But it also includes empowerment for ministry. And you have a ministry. Doesn't necessarily mean you're a full-time minister, but God has called you to use your gifts to participate in his kingdom-building work. And the wonderful news is that Christ is in you, ready and willing, by the power of the Holy Spirit to work through you. Let's look at the other side of this passage because here we see the reality of this operating in Jesus' life. Luke 4.14, not in your bulletins, but if you have your Bibles, it's the next verse that comes after this reading. It says, Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. So he leaves the desert and is beginning his ministry. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's casting out demons. He's healing people of infirmities. Basically, after defeating the darkness in the desert, he's taken it on in the world as well. But it's through the Holy Spirit that he's equipped to do the ministry that God has called him to. Again, if this is the pattern for Jesus, 
then it must be for us as well. So in summary, remember who you are and that your identity is wrapped up in Jesus' victorious story and remember whose you are and that his spirit resides in you and gives you the power to live out the good story that God intends for you to live. So as we enter into the desert of Lent, as we face the temptations, struggles, and opportunities that will meet us this season, may we do it with the hope that comes from knowing that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. Amen. Thanks for listening. Would you like to connect with our church? Join us online or in person every week at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit incarnationcfl.com to learn more. Have a great week.